0: I think in modern society and the the way in which some some people who are in the top of the organisations in the country lead, I think a lot more could be done and I'd like to see more done to develop leadership skills and emotional intelligence skills and communication skills in young people, you know, both in schools and uh, as they leave school going into the workplace, because I often think we judge people on um, your GCSE results or A-level results, it's purely academic, whereas the people who are successful in life are champion people who can communicate and lead well. And um, I think it's a skill that can be learned.
1: That was Stuart Lancaster. I am Curtis Mansfield, and this is the Hips and Dips podcast. This week, I'm very privileged to be joined by Leinster Rugby senior coach, Stuart Lancaster. Over the four years of Stewart's stewardship, Leinster have won Pro 14 titles in 2018, 19 and 20 and lifted the European Champions Cup in 2018, as well as being runners-up in 2019. Stewart preceded his success in Dublin with notable achievement at almost every level of professional rugby here in England. Initially directing the Leeds Rugby Academy between 2001 and 2005, before taking on the head coach role with Leeds guiding them to promotion to top flight in 2007, with a record points tally of 112. This monumental achievement with Leeds was recognised by the RFU, leading to Lancaster's appointment to the RFU role with the guidance to help develop future England talent. At this time, he guided England Saxons to a Churchill Cup success, the under-20s to three World Cup finals, and achieved an under-20 Six Nations Grand Slam. In 2011, following a media circus at the 2011 Rugby World Cup, Stewart was given the England head coach role with the hope he could overhaul the team's culture. His tenure as head coach saw England finish runners-up in all the Six Nations championships they took part in, winning one triple crown and four successful Calcutta Cup defences. They also got their hands on two Cook Cups and a Hillary shield thanks to memorable victories against Australia and the then world champions, New Zealand. Unfortunately, 2015 saw Lancaster's England tenure finish and its reputation tarnished thanks to England's worst ever results at a Rugby World Cup. Also, they became the first host nation to not qualify for knockout stages in the competition's history. Lancaster then boosted his CV with experience in the Southern Hemisphere before finding his new home in Dublin. I'm joining Stuart for a chat all things injury and rugby after he finishes training for the day. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what motivates this man in his career. And most importantly, how injuries and workloads are managed in rugby from the man who oversees it from a coaching point of view at perhaps one of the world's most successful sporting organizations. I think it's gonna be a cracker. So ladies and gentlemen, I give you Leinster senior coach, it's Mr. Stuart Lancaster. Okay, right, so I'm here with Leinster Legends, Stuart Lancaster. Stuart, how are you doing today?
0: Yes, good, thank you. Yeah. Um getting ready for our game this weekend. So we've got a game against Glasgow. Um obviously in the middle of the Six Nations. So the majority of our squad are away playing for, for Ireland. Um, but you know, Leinster the show rolls on with Leinster and uh you know we watch Six Nations with interest.
1: Yeah, that's one of the great strengths about watching fair I think Irish rugby in general at the moment but particularly in Leinster you lose all these uh amazing international stars and there's always someone else next man up and they're always almost just as good this conveyor belt of talent you've got over there which is um which is fantastic to see from from this side of the pond um okay so I'm going to start with the sort of the similar question we have every week really which is to explore my guests um effects of the COVID pandemic on their health um and I'm as always I'm interested in that Whole definition of health so mental physical and social so how's this pandemic year been for you
0: um no it's been fine really i mean so <clears throat> we were due to go to south africa uh, in mid mid-march 2020 and we got a call on thursday to say we think the game's in doubt and then before we knew it the game had been pulled and um the club was shut down so i went so I, I live in Dublin, um, and then my family, so wife and two children plus two dogs live in uh, Leeds. Um, so I've been operating on the commute from Leeds to Dublin for the last three or four years, really. Um, so as soon as it happened, I drove to the airport, went back to Leeds, and it became clear very quickly, obviously, that we're going to enter in a full lockdown. So um, I immediately went to the farm. My mum's on her own on the farm, so we're from a farm in Cumbria. And uh, so I went up there with my son and spent some time up there and Then, obviously, as the, the days moved into weeks, which moved into months, um, <coughs> I kept myself very busy with uh, obviously, there was remote coaching with the Leinster lads. Uh, as you know, there was a lot of sort of podcasts and a lot of online activity, uh, particularly in rugby and sport. Um, so I sort of tried to share what I learned. We had a hookup with the Crusaders in New Zealand, um, and we had a lot of shared learning going on there. Um, a lot of coaching conversations um and then obviously personally for me spending a bit of time at home with the kids haven't been away on the road with the England job and obviously now the Leinster job it was it was good the weather was nice and you know I managed to I, I'm pretty good at exercising so we've got um a gym in the garage and I'll be out running and whatever else and then um July came around and I came back to Dublin uh and we um pretty much set our bubble up at Leinster and then I've coached Ever since, really. Uh, the last season finished. We had a bit of a break. The new season started. Um, and here we are probably halfway through the new season. So the main the main difference has been I've not been able to commute backwards and forwards. So I've had two visits back to England since July. My wife's come over a couple of times. So that's a really difficult bit, you know, where um, you're not seeing you know, your family and your kids um, consistently. The kids are pretty good because obviously they're used to remote. Communication anyway, you know the way they they speak, you know um, FaceTime and everything, Um, and obviously get to see my mum as well. So, um, but generally, I'm lucky to be doing the job I'm doing. You know, we're um, I'm outside, I'm coaching, we've got meetings, um, the games are taking place albeit with no crowds, so it's comparatively normal. So yeah, I've been fine really.
1: Well, that's great. I mean, there are plenty of positives and both of us are lucky enough to be able to carry on doing our jobs throughout this yeah. pandemic so in my case working in the hospital in your case obviously working in rugby we've we've been more fortunate perhaps than some other people who haven't had work or haven't had jobs etc but it must be really hard for you to have that distance family I think mean, that's something I'd really struggle with and I imagine just from this very brief conversation we've had you'll thinking you'll sort of person who perhaps may struggle to switch off if you haven't got that family nearby would that be fair to say because
0: if you leave uh, yeah, if to, you leave training go. i've got a lot of downtime in evenings um but if you look around my flat there's probably 60 or 70 books scattered around okay um i don't have a tv so you know if i do need to switch off i can easily stick on a netflix series or whatever um but generally the, you know the day job takes up a lot of time um and then um if I'm doing things like this in the evening or inevitably it's a Zoom call or a FaceTime call to the family. Um, uh, and, you know, I'm pretty good at going out for walks and going out for a run and sitting a podcast on and getting some fresh air. So I don't feel like I'm trapped, you know, even the the restrictions mm-hmm. in Ireland are quite pretty strict, really. Um, um, and the vaccination rollout programme is probably behind the UK. So it's going to take a while, I think. Um, but I can see a life at the end of the tunnel, so
1: fantastic. Yeah. And I mean, I've been to Dublin a few times, a lovely part of the world I suppose to be stuck in if you had a if you had to choose one. Maybe not the weather, but so Yeah, I mean obviously you you
0: miss you miss the vibrancy of the city, you know, the the tourism, the the temple bar, you know, the music, the atmosphere in the pubs and the um, the restaurants, which is a big part of Dublin. It's a very social city. I think the 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 city is poorer for that at the moment, but it'll come back, you know. Piano,
1: yeah. yeah, hopefully, yeah, and uh, and yeah, fantastic. Okay, so so I'm cautious of time, so I don't want to waste too much of your time. So I'm sure it's very, very precious. You're a very busy man. So um, I have, however, prepared a very quick uh, ice breaking game. We do this every week, and it's normally inspired by the guest's name or something to do with their background. Um, I was going to do a quiz based on uh, Lancaster. Uh, but I think that would have been pretty, pretty rubbish. Um, not, <laughs> not your name, the, the place. Uh, I did not have much i go <laughs> on that. So instead, um, I've been inspired by your past and the fact your playing days, which will lead very nicely into question number one, because not many people know about your playing days. Um, but what I've, done is I've looked at a series of top coaches around the world, and I want you to tell me what position they played before they retired. In a little game we're going to play, what do you think they were? Okay. Okay. Interesting actually. Uh, you might find this interesting. You are number five. When you type in rugby coach into Google, you're the fifth name that comes up, which is uh which is nice. a good thing
0: or a bad thing, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I'll take it. <laughs>
1: yeah, definitely. Um number one was Eddie Jones. So I'm not sure <laughs> what we can read into that. But there we go. Right. Uh so uh right, so number one is a uh, Wales legend, Warren Gatland. Okay. Correct. Uh, number two, Gregor Townsend. Fly half. I'll give you fly half. In brackets, it's also centre and fallback. Uh, Graham Roundtree from Munster and uh, Harlequins, etc. Who said prop? Uh, very specific, yep. Uh, you can only tell by the ears. Uh, Sir Steve Hansen.
0: Uh, I think it was center. he was
1: a centre. He was a centre, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, did, I didn't know that. I had to Google that myself. Uh, oh, Vern big Cotter.
0: Center. Big centre. So who was that?
1: Uh, Vern Cotter. Ooh, Vern Cotter. Second row? Uh, no, he was a back row number eight. Row. We'll um, Andy Robinson. Open side. Uh, yeah, very specific again. I got down flanker. We'll go over open side. Uh, what about Wayne Pivak, current Wales coach?
0: I thought you'd ask him.
1: Um, I should know I, I, I think he's back row. He is back row, yeah. Flanker. Uh, what about um, Harlequins legend and uh, previous Italy coach Connor O'Shea? Fullback. Fullback. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and then down to Southern Hemisphere again for Michael Checker. I'm red. Uh, number eight yes uh, and then finally for the uh, full marks oh no uh, you got one wrong didn't you finally for number nine uh, Die Young. Prop. He was a prop yeah and it's interesting actually because so yes that's nine out of ten which is very good uh, it's interesting that as someone um, so born in 95 so some of these players careers uh, were when I was very young or even before I was born um, some of them I probably wouldn't have guessed. Uh, like Dai Young I probably would have guessed he was a prop Um, but uh, (laughs) Wayne Pivak Wayne Pivak I was probably thinking more likely maybe a centre just from perhaps the way he plays the game and stuff Um, and Vern Cotter as well I was thinking maybe in the backs but uh, obviously I didn't know much about these guys but yeah so 9 out of 10 very good Um, and what's interesting about that list is uh, as a side note it's such a diverse list of positions so I think maybe you'd perhaps think there might be some common ground between coaches. You might go, oh, most coaches who who have success at the international game, perhaps uh, maybe will come from like fly half because they think about the game a certain way. Or they're all back rows because, you know, perhaps back rows get involved in the game the most or they're all... Fullbacks because they see the game from one position. But it turns out, if you look at that, you go hooker, fly half, uh, prop, centre, number eight, flanker, flanker, fullback, number eight, prop. So all the bases covered, really.
0: There is a lot of probably more forwards than you'd think, not obviously not necessarily in that list, but generally, you look at some of the coaches in the Premiership now, you know, Steve Borthwick, second row, Stuart Hooper, second row, George Skiverton, second row, you know, Alex Sanderson, back row, um, Richard Cockrell, hooker you know so mm. there's a lot of forwards former forwards who become coaches um i think cuz i played flanker and i guess i probably could have played center as well you know you see the game from a from a backs forwards perspective that's the way i see it but obviously it's w- what you played and how you coach are probably slightly related but there's a lot of other influences as well about your your coaching philosophy as well
1: well yeah of course um i suppose you, you could maybe say that the way the game's changed in recent years and the ha- perhaps the way like physicality and the game line and ball protections perhaps being more emphasized may well lead to more forwards being coaches and also perhaps particularly if you go back to the last generation a lot of captains were forwards and obviously I suppose maybe captains lend themselves to being good coaches perhaps of that leadership role and yeah. um, the communication side of things but but I think yeah. it is interesting that it's clearly a very diverse uh, profession. Um, but right, so let's let's park that game to one side actually, and let's move on to what I think is actually a really interesting point, which is your playing career, because so I know you as um, well, I knew you as a Leeds coach briefly when I was obviously quite young, and then into your England career, now your Leinster career. Um, didn't know much about your playing career before I looked into it. Um, as you mentioned, you were a, a flanker. Uh, your, your bio actually says flanker slash hooker. So I assume there's some sort of uh, transition okay. there. No? Very much yeah. flanker.
0: So uh, Very much
1: flanker. <laughs> so having I mean, Wikipedia was wrong there. But um, yeah. yeah, so tell everyone a little bit about sort of your playing career, your highlights, and then the injury that saw you transition into coaching.
0: Yeah, so I uh, <clears throat> played at school, um, went to university in 1988. Um, Played at university and played for a club called Wakefield at the time, which were a very uh, attack minded club, um, full of talented players, really. So I was very young, 18 years old, going into that men's uh, senior environment. Um, Played there for two years and then went to Headingley, which was the local club in in Leeds where the university was, um, which is 91 now, 92. (coughs) And um, Headingley and Round emerged to form a club called Leeds. So that that merger resulted in the sale of the ground to a supermarket, to Morrison's. And there was a load of money which coincided with the advent of professionalism. So the club went from, you know, national three really into vying to be in the premiership um, during the, you know, the late nineties, really Um, game went professional 95. So I played over 100 times for the first team, but probably played as many times for the second team. But I was very, just on the injury front, very, very lucky during my career um, from the age of 18, never really sustained any significant injuries. Um, I, you know, I pretty much played 30 games a year from September through till the end of April. Mm. Um, whether you're first team or second team, depending on selection and, and who's around at the time. Uh, as, the game, as the team went more professional and, you know, Bigger bigger players came in. Uh, my sort of physical size sort of caught with me. You know, 90kg open side, which in modern days would be very small, really, for an open side. Um, you'd probably be a centre at best or maybe even a scrum half. So <clears throat> um, the, the more I went into the late 90s, the less I played in the senior team. And it obviously, Leeds were pushing for Premiership. And then um, I got a training ground injury where... Basically, we were doing a rook drill, and I um, stepped over a guy who'd gone on the floor to present the ball, and I was just there to um, to clear out. And then, as someone challenged me, my back foot slipped, and I basically probably did probably did the splits, but almost not, not side to side, front and back, if you like. Um, and I felt a crack um, where the hamstring uh, inserted into the bone in my hip. You know, in the um, it's called an Initial tuberosity was the injury. I didn't know it at the time, but I knew I'd done something serious because all the power suddenly went. And effectively, I didn't rip I didn't rip the hamstring from the bone, but I had an avulsion fracture where the, the tendon had pulled a bit of bone off and well, a lot of bone off. And um, but I didn't know that at the time. There was no real medical care. There was no MRIs, um, and I was out of contract, so I was pretty much left to my own devices. And not only that, it was I think it was. I know mid mid December 1999, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously the millennium 2000 was massive, massive party time, you know, in the country, <laughs> and we'd booked to go skiing for um, the millennium, and we'd paid like been saving up, paying for th- three years, and there was a group of about twenty of us going, so I just thought I was just going to tough it out, and so two weeks later I was on the slopes and skiing and. But all the time I was thinking, geez, this is killing me, this injury. Um, so I came back from the skiing, um, physio gave me some exercises. I sort of did those. But realistically, by March and April now, I still wasn't getting any power back. And eventually through the NHS, I got to the NHS and um, got myself on the waiting list for a scan. But by then, the, the season had finished and my contract was over. So I was out, out of contract. And... Uh, and so the, the club said, would you like to coach the, the academy team? Um, so I started doing that while I was with this MRI. And then I continued to run, but because I was running, but running without the sort of power my, on my, my left side, I began to get other problems like back problems or shin splints or whatever. Yeah. I was still, so I was still ticking over. but And gradually, no operation took place. I guess the body healed itself. And I did play once or twice since, and I could have played more, but by then the sort of coaching had started, and I guess you know, maybe things happened for a reason, you know, who knows. But that was the end, so I was 30 years old, um, and it was the year 2000.
1: Yeah, and um, I think I read that, interestingly, the guy who um, who hit that tackle bag was Tom Palmer, who, yeah. am I right thinking, you handed your England debut to yeah, yeah exactly exactly yeah <laughs> that's a more people. example of things going full circle <laughs> um, I like to think you had a little bit of a banter in the changing rooms <laughs> but, um, we won't we won't know about that um, so I suppose what is interesting did you think you're always going to go into coaching or did this injury just kind of thrust that upon you
0: um, well I was obviously a teacher at the time PE teacher and um, I guess towards the end of my playing career I wasn't actually thinking about retiring from playing, so it, it probably accelerated it. Um, but, yeah, I guess... I, I guess that the, the coaching bug in me started at that point, and then when the academy job came up, it gave me a chance to leave teaching full-time and go full-time in the academy. Um, that was a difficult decision because it was a secure profession teaching, but uh, for an insecure profession being in, in a professional rugby club, but it was too good an opportunity to turn down, so... Um, Yeah, from that part onwards, I never really looked back and it was something I always wanted to do. That said, I'd be happy to go back into teaching again. You know, I enjoyed teaching, really did.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I suppose there's always an option in the future. Um, But right now, you're clearly having lots of success success in coaching, so um, certainly keep that up. Um, I suppose on this subject, what's quite interesting is, do you think players nowadays as the game's changed it changed throughout your career it's continued to change since but do you think players now do enough to prepare themselves for potential injury or the end of their careers Because obviously you've had a great career following that um but it was very much helped by the fact you'd already done your teaching qualifications you already had your degree and so on
0: yeah I think it depends on the environment I've been being honest I think there's some some environments are more proactive in encouraging the players to do things they're preparing for life after will be, whether that be retirement, lack of contract, you know, um, injury. Uh, so it just depends. So it lends to where we're at the moment, most of the lads are doing degrees at UCD um, or if they've got the degrees, do, they're doing a masters or they're doing some form of work experience. So they're pretty sensible over here and they'll, they'll be proactive and we'll be very flexible in terms of support for dissertations, exams, to allow them to miss training or even games if, 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 it, if it needs. Um, but I know there's other clubs and other agents potentially who would say to a player, you know, just pour your eggs in the rugby basket. You can also do your degree later, which often comes back and haunts them really, because, you know, if something does happen, a coach decides they don't fit and they have to move clubs or they do get an injury that's, you know, career threatening, then often at 26, 27, there's nothing to fall back on. So then they're left struggling. Um, So I think it depends very much on the environment.
1: Yeah, and I actually I did an interview back, uh, God, a while ago now, episode number two of the podcast. Um, So anyone listening, check that one out with uh, a player called Don McGeeky, who um, he is now a teacher, but he played in the championship uh, with rugby, played for London Scottish, um, and then uh, later on Blackheath. And his story was quite interesting because he had injury um at much younger age he was in his early 20s but he actually made that decision to go to university before turning professional which obviously in the end helped him out massively because he had signed to fall back on which he said if he had followed what harlequin said to him when he was a teenager he probably would have gone professional 18 probably had nothing to fall back on and when those injuries came or when his contracts didn't come he um he might well be a very different position than he is now. So I think it's interesting yeah, about having no, someone exactly, exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, My son's uh, under 20 this year, so he's eligible for England 20s. He's in the EPS squad, but he's in the second year of his degree also at Leeds Beckett doing sports coaching um, yeah. for that very reason.
1: Well, exactly. Yeah, I, th- I think it's something which is certainly possible to do as well. You can only play rugby for so many hours a day. And if mm-hmm. it's possible to combine okay. two or three things together, then why, yeah. not? why not diversify for sure? Um, okay, so you said you mentioned teaching a few times there and um I did promise I'm not going to mention too much about the England days but what I would like to talk about is um the media often made reference to you as a teacher and they often used it I felt in quite a negative sense it was like oh he's a teacher he's more like a like a supervisor and I don't know almost like a slight negative turn to it but I only really see that as a positive um the background of having that sort of maybe more progressive mindset you get as a teacher than perhaps purely as a short-sighted and you might get as a coach um do you think perhaps those days as a teacher and those qualifications helped you at all uh, when you went into coaching
0: yeah massively massively i mean um there are loads of teachers out there who are rugby coaches you know joe schmidt graham henry you know um soccer soccer coaches who've, who've been teachers so there's, there's, there's lots of people who've been teachers who've gone into coaching. And the reason it's um, useful is because you get taught how to teach, first and foremost, when you go to teacher training college. Um, you get you do micro teaching where you get video teaching and you get to see what your um, strengths and weaknesses are and how you control the class and how you communicate and how you motivate. And then every day you do five lessons a day. So you plan a session, you do a session, or you do a lesson and you review it. And then you do... Badminton, then you do basketball, then you do soccer, and then you do gymnastics, and you do rugby, and then that's Monday. Done. Then you do Tuesday. So the old ten thousand hour rule of um, planning a session, doing it with a, with a group, um, be it year sevens, year elevens, upper sixth, different sports, different activities. You do it five times a day, five days a week. You know you do learn on the job um, what's good and bad practice, and yeah, you know, with all due respect to, to, to some of the lessons, you know it's not a disaster if you get it wrong because you've always got the next lesson, whereas in, in coaching, you know, you've got one chance. And I think the foundation of teaching definitely helped me um, hugely mm. um, in, in developing my skills as a coach. And a lot of players who go straight from playing into coaching without the teaching element, they've also got very good technical knowledge, but it's the how to coach and how to teach that they don't have, which, which I think teachers um, have an advantage. You know, in terms of the stereotype, yeah. the teacher stereotype, you know, I, I think you've got to be careful not to to read into a certain narrative. The narrative sometimes can be dictated by the media depending on on, on the results. You know, when I first started, one of the strongest parts of support was the fact I was a teacher and I hadn't been, you know. So, you know, the narrative changes depends on the way the media want to portray you. And um, you can't really control that, really, um, which is, I guess, part of the... The frustration of the job all you've got to try and do is try and get your part of you across and how you come across you know authentically to people like yourself who are listening thinking you know I can see why teaching would be useful
1: yeah and I mean also I think probably the role of being a good coach and progressing a team is to bring more outside influence in and that can come from different sports and different perspectives and I think you have to really try and diversify the way you approach the game. So if you've just gone from being a player to being a coach straight away, you've really only got one sort of mindset. Um, I said, if someone has come from teaching, you can bring in influences from football, from um, athletics, from weightlifting. I mean, you mean, have all sorts of different influences, perhaps different um, skill sets and bring them into rugby rather than just doing what your predecessors did. So I mean, you always want to try and learn new skills. There's
0: 101 things you learn as a teacher. Um uh, you know uh, over five well I did it, well, I did it for what, eight eight years before I, I left teaching so you know um, some teachers uh, or my friends now who are on my course they're, they're 25 years later and the depth and breadth of experience they have should allow them to deal with most situations because they'll have seen it before.
1: Yeah, and I think I think you've carried that on into your coaching career as well because, I think I saw an interview you recently where you mentioned working with GAA over in Ireland. So having those yeah. sort of Gaelic football influences. And if you can learn from that sport and they can learn from you and those collaborations and sports around the world can only really be a benefit.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that would be the tip of the iceberg really in terms of sports. I would try to learn from and share ideas with.
1: Yeah. Well, great. Um, okay. So I think we can probably sort of park the sort of playing days and that transition into rugby And sort of teaching side there um so now i want to sort of talk to you as you in your current role and where you are now and i think one thing that's quite topical in the news at the moment and i think it's topical pretty much every year every year it comes up again in a new cycle but the idea about player welfare and as a coach perhaps being torn between on-field short-term success and perhaps the long-term sort of player welfare um, so how do you deal with those potentially ethical dilemmas in a game or in a season?
0: Well, again, it comes, I think it comes back to the philosophy of the club, the philosophy of the coaching team, uh, the philosophy of the head coach and the environment that you're in. So, you know, it lends to we'd be very player-focused. So we'd always put the needs of the player and the welfare of the player at the forefront of the, the decision. So we're lucky in that we've got 45 senior players and 20 academy. And the 20 Academy lads are all Ireland 20s or above, you know. So they're 20, 21 years old, 22 years old. So it's not like they're you're throwing an 18-year-old into a Pro 14 game, or a European Cup game. Yeah. Um, so we've got because we've got this depth in our squad, it's not n- necessary for the best players to play every game. Um, and uh, <clears throat> if someone's carrying a knock, whether it be a head knock or a physical knock, you know, in the body, like a, a, an ankle injury or whatever. Um, then we've got the squad to rotate and change. And also, you know, we have um, the mindset of, of putting the player at the centre. So um, that's not always been the case in every environment I've been in, um, but certainly the one I'm in now. And I think part of the reason why Leinster are one of the top European teams is because of that, that depth of talent, um, the mindset of player welfare, um, the rotation policy, um, and the general uh, philosophy of looking after your players.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it, but it must be really hard. Well, I suppose I suppose it depends on who makes those decisions. So I imagine you use probably an MDT team, sort of doctors and physios and all sorts of sort of more medical perspectives, but do you sort of try and put that decision-making on them and take it away from the player? Because I think in, no, in, yeah. in any sport, particularly rugby, yeah. where you've got lots of sort of tough blokes and everyone wants to play, of course you want to play. Say there's, you know, yeah. you've had... Uh, you know, in recent years, you've had lots of success in the those European Cups and stuff. So you've got these big games. Of course, you want to be on the pitch. And sometimes what you need is someone to say, I don't care, something I you're not going to play. We're taking that decision away from the players. Because if you give it to the players, players will want to play.
0: Yeah, exactly. No, no, no. 100%. I mean, you know, the doctor and the, the head physio ultimately will make the final call. And we as coaches have to respect that. And, you know, there's nothing... You want more in your coaching team than an experienced doctor and experienced physio team who are, who are good at making those decisions um, and have to stand by them. And we have to respect that. You know, we, can't, we can't then put subliminal pressure on the coaches, or the, or the physios and doctors, because they've now left us with our best player on the sideline. That's just life. Um, yeah. As soon as we start doing that and trying to uh, negatively or necessarily influence them, um, then I think we're as guilty as anyone for for trying to force their hand to make a player play when he sh- clearly shouldn't.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a real strength of making things more black and white. And I think that's been really well emphasised with the recent approach to head injuries, say so the last three or four seasons, when it's, has there been a knock to the head? Has there been, um, you know, have they met this criteria, right? They're off. Uh, they're going to yeah. be assessed if they don't pass that assessment, they're off for the rest of the game. It's a very clear system. There's not, You can't be there going, um, you know, saying your shoes going, Oh, well, maybe they could come back on or maybe can we do this? Or are you sure this, you know, it's very simple. It's yes or no. And then yeah. it's taken out of your hands, which is the, the less people apart from medical people involved can only really be a good thing. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but I suppose, I, mean, I wasn't really going to mention this, but it's just so topical at the moment. Um, we've seen in recent weeks a lot of red cards and they're all due to mostly due to head knocks um a lot of them around the breakdown i mean there was i mean there was five in the premiership last weekend and um of course a famous one in the six nations and the scotland game i mean as a coach um what's kind of your view on on the way they're trying to make the game safer um, I'm sure you're in favour of making the game safer, of course. But is this the right way to do it? And how are you at Leinster trying to adapt to those new rules?
0: Yeah, no, no. I mean, obviously, you have to, you have to make the game safer because otherwise, you know, with the, the media profile and the, and the scrutiny on, 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 on the game itself, you know, if you don't make it safer, then there'll be parents sat out there thinking they don't want their children to play the sport. So you want them to play the sport because of all the benefits that it brings, but it has to be done within a framework of safety. And um, uh, my mind is we need to coach the players better to have better technique. Now there are split second decisions sometimes that um, can go wrong um, and um, that can result in a yellow or red card. Um, But we certainly put a lot of emphasis on good technique, safe technique, tackle technique, clear out technique, um to make sure that we will A not injuring anyone necessarily and B not getting our own players sent off which is gonna obviously impact our chance of winning. Um so yeah, I'd be I'd be supportive obviously.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so I'm sure you would be. And it's it's funny, but the you know, sometimes the only way to get through to players and coaches and people in the game is to have that punishment. And in this case it's obviously the the red card which I'm sure as a coach, if you have a player sent off, you know for well, it's very hard for you then to win the game, um, of course. Yeah. And that's been shown in the Six Nations with um, Scotland and Ireland both suffering losses as a result of those red cards. Um, and the only way to do, to fix the red cards really is obviously to fix the technique, which is what you've said. And we've seen it in plenty of examples from different sports. We saw um, in football this season at the start of the year, you know, goalkeepers kept going off the line so penalties are being retaken every time and then after what maybe three four weeks suddenly footballers learn you have to sound the line um in rugby we saw what going back oh god i think maybe four or five years about the um the competition in the air for the ball there was like loads of red cards for people being taken out in the air players learn and now you very rarely see it so yeah it's just about sometimes change you have to be behavior. sort of harsh to fix it yeah yeah change behavior Exactly, yeah, and sometimes that's the only way to get to get through to people, especially when it's, and you understand it, because you know people have been taught for their whole rugby career to approach a rock this way, or to tackle a player this way, or to do this this way, and suddenly you're trying to break down an entire lifetime of repetitive motions very quickly into making it a whole new technique, which isn't really, oh, it's a lot of rugby's instinctive, so trying to break down instinctive behaviour is very hard. Yeah. Um, right, so... So you said you're now over in Ireland, you spent four years there, which is obviously some time you've had lots of success, which I outlined earlier on, but um, how do you think perhaps player attitudes, particularly in terms of uh, development and sort of injury management and just general player development, I suppose, differs between Ireland and England?
0: I think think in Ireland, they're generally a later development model. So... Uh, because of school, you go to university and you join the sub academy at 18, two years in the sub academy, and then three years in the academy. So by the time you leave the academy, you're talking, you're 22, 23 years old. Whereas in England, a lot of the decisions are made at 18, and you can often be put into the senior squad at 18, 19, um, which, which obviously is very early in your. You know, if I think back to my first or second year out of school, I was just playing at university and playing at Wakefield. I wasn't trying to break into the Bath senior team or, you know, Northampton or getting thrust into a senior team and playing against Toulouse in the European Cup. Mm. Um, So I think the model in Ireland is slightly later, which I think is beneficial for the younger players. Um, uh, And I think the other difference, I guess, is that there's a central contract in modern Ireland where the players are contracted in in, in a sub-academy, and academy uh, contract. Which is consistent across the board. So financially, everyone gets the same money if they're on the same tier of contract. Whereas in England, you know, there could be lads in the England um, Twenty squad um, who are uh, all on different contracts. Some on five grand, some on ten grand, some on sixty grand. You know, so that that pull of the finances and how all that plays out is part of one of the challenges in England, which doesn't doesn't exist in Ireland because of the central contracting system.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, think that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, like you mentioned, so an 18-year-old, I can think back um, to getting longer and longer since I was 18. It is it is tricky when someone offers you a sum of money and you're thinking, is this best for my career? Is this best long-term or short-term? Do you want to take the payday now? Like, um, so I mentioned, Dom earlier, after he was offered money to go to Harlequins, he turned it down to go and do his degree um, and probably follow... Unintentionally, a more similar plan to the Ireland model. So he, he got his degree, did sort of academy stuff with Cardiff Met, and then went back and tried to become professional. Um, but yeah, I think there probably is some benefits to having that sort of central system um, for sure. Um, and I think that's probably precipitated a lot of success, which both to and Ireland have had in recent seasons. Yeah,
0: particularly for for a country that's got less playing population and obviously less number of clubs—four clubs versus twelve.
1: Yeah, something I've always found really interesting, actually, is in in Ireland, they've only got the four teams, um, obviously um, four provinces. And I think that actually is a a much simpler model when it comes to international success. And you see it with a similar approach in New Zealand, where you've got the super rugby teams and Australia and South Africa. Um, They've all got less teams or at least less top tier teams than England have. And I've always said England have always really struggled with um, so many options that it's almost too many options, it's like a kid in a, in a, sweet shop. And say you go, um, say, say we take a position, we take fly half um, Ireland have, you know, a couple of options. You've got uh, Johnny Sexton, you've got Rory Burns, you've got um,
0: uh, Ross
1: uh, Burn, Ross Byrne. Yeah. Um, and
0: there's not many yeah um, there's not
1: many yeah and obviously you said previously you've had some more who have come and gone some have gone abroad etc but overall you've got a handful of options so two or three of them are straight in the squad regardless and then the other one or two maybe miss out uh when you look at england and you go you've got potentially sort of 10 fly halves plus some of the subs potentially so you've got sort of like so many options that it means the media have always got this debate it's like ah you know i mean i don't want to give you flashbacks to your days of England, but it was like, uh, oh, Cipriani should be in the squad. Oh, no, um, uh, Sam Simmons should be in the squad. Or, oh, no, it has to be Owen Farrell. It has to be George Ford. You've got so many potential fly halves that as soon as one has a bad game, the media are all over it. Where, say, in Ireland, you know, it's Johnny Sexton and then there's maybe, um, you know, maybe some people go, oh, maybe Ross Burns should be in rather than um, Freddie Burns. But generally, it's very simple. There's Basically, if you're a fly-half and you're playing for your province, you've got a pretty good chance of being in, and that's consistent for all the... Uh, all yeah, the...
0: I think, I think the, the other challenge is sometimes as well, when you've got 12 different ways of playing the game through your clubs, trying to align those philosophies into one way of playing. Um, you know, sometimes it's easier when you've got almost... Uh, in Ireland, you've got a similar way of playing between the four provinces, whereas in England, you know, the way that Saracens were playing when I was coaching England... Will be different to Northampton. Will be different to Leicester. Will be different to Bath. And so yeah. you've got to try and that's just four clubs. Never mind the other, yeah, you know, you, you're, you're, the other eight. So you're trying to merge all those players into one way of playing in a week's camp, and before you know it, you're into the Six Nations. So, you know, its strengths and weaknesses are both definitely. Um, uh, but you know, England's certainly got player depth and a pool of talent that's significantly more than Ireland.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's certainly a credit to what Ireland are doing that they can match, uh, match England's success in recent years, despite um, not having said that massive talent pool for sure. Um, Right. So I suppose one sort of slightly uh, rugby nerdy question of mine, perhaps, is do you have yourself sort of like a coaching bucket list that you'd like to achieve in rugby? I'm thinking maybe like a Lions tour or Barbarians or coach in the Southern Hemisphere? Are there any sort of things you'd love to achieve in your career? Uh,
0: yeah, no, there's, lot, there's lots really. I still feel there's a long way to go. Um, I think that, um, yeah, coaching in the Southern Hemisphere definitely would be a goal, um, particularly in New Zealand. Um, uh, i coached in the of 10 for a while in 2016, which I enjoyed. Um New Zealand would be very similar to Cumbria in terms of like the way our, you know, the sort of farming communities, and uh, it reminded me a lot of home, really, even though it's miles away. Um, uh, and obviously, the talent there and the, the you know the environment would make it really challenging and enjoyable. Obviously, Australia from a um, from a rugby point of view, but also a lifestyle point of view, you know, to go there with my family and my wife to go and coach in Brisbane or Sydney or Perth um, would would be a goal to coach to coach on the Lions. I think it's everyone's sort of Pinnacle, really. You know, you want to coach the best players in the biggest games, and that's certainly way up there. Um, coaching in France, you know, maybe further down the line. <laughs> I think um, um, the barrier there really is, the language barrier as much as anything else. So I think I'd need to be more proficient in Franks now at the moment, to put it that way. So, um, But equally, you know, I'm happy doing what I'm doing now. I'm at a very good club. And... Uh, What great pool of talent going through, really?
1: Yeah, so it's it's this endless conveyor belt. So you kind of imagine, and you never know how things are going to go. But if you stay there another five years, you have another five years of success. If you stay another ten years, you have another ten years of success. It doesn't seem like it's ever going to run out of these sort of these great players coming through in this great system.
0: And it's it's just just a case of you've got to be able to keep reinventing yourself if you're coaching the same players all the time. You know, um, I think that's important. you know, there is, I've been, I've seen certain environments where the coaches have stayed too long and the same players, same drills, same thing every day, same messages, and it becomes stale and I don't ever want that to happen at Leinster. So constantly challenging myself to do things differently, um, to keep the message alive. Do you know what I
1: mean? Yeah. And uh, while I'm on the subject of keeping things interesting, um, I remember hearing about uh, something you call Stews days. So would you like to enlighten us and what that involves?
0: Well, I, actually, I didn't come up with the name. It was the players that came up with the name. It was just um, typically our tough days, the Tuesday. So it became a Tuesday because I made it especially tough. So, um, yeah, they came up with the name. And uh, Tuesdays would be the day that we would really work hard. Um, I'd, I'd work them hard on attack and defence and give them very little rest, high intensity um, sessions, lots of decision making, game related activity. Um, and I think that. Has created the foundation of a lot of our success as well as obviously the identity of the team and the talent.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, so what would a normal week look like for you guys um, in the in the main part of the season? So you've got a game Saturday, game Saturday. How does that balance work between recovery and training in between those games?
0: Yeah so the players the players be offered a Sunday um they'll be in medical clinic. We would Monday morning be in um, Obviously, I'd have done the review and we've had the discussions about selection for the following week. So I'd present the review on lessons learned from the game, good, bad, you know, what we can do better. Um, That splits into unit reviews and then into conditioning, weights, essentially. Um, And then the afternoon is a preview of the opposition, followed by training, which is relatively light on a Monday. Um, Tuesday is the big day, this Tuesday. So again, a preview of the opposition, reminder of what we talked about yesterday. Big rugby session, units after that, and then waiting in the afternoon. Uh, Wednesday off, and then Thursday would be um, conditioning in the uh, morning, like a power-based weight session, uh, followed by a leadership meeting in terms of game planning and what-if scenario. And then uh, a shorter training session, 40 minutes all in. Um, uh, and then we would scout the opposition for the following week. Uh, And then Friday would be the captain's run. So pretty short and sharp, uh, half an hour um, and then Saturday game and repeat, 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 you know, Um, uh, we know we've, we've been going now for since August and um, the final game is the 26th of June. Um, You know, compare that to Super Rugby, which is 16 games. That's it. Mm,
1: Yeah. And, um, so there's one extra challenge which has been introduced in recent years in the pro-14 is um, this idea of having a, so that, so that, oh God, the South African nations joining in, um, which yeah. I imagine proposes its own challenges because it's one thing, you know, travelling over to Edinburgh for a game, but to travel down to South Africa um, and then travel back, I think that's unlikely to happen. Um,
0: but I think what might happen in the COVID current climate is... Um, the South African teams come up north and bubble up and okay. um, play like some form of two or three week tour and then go back. Okay, so I think it will happen this year. Um, it'll definitely happen next year, obviously vaccines permitting. But um, this year, I think that uh, I don't think we'll travel to South Africa. I think it's more likely that they'll come to they'll come to to Ireland, Wales, and Scotland.
1: Yeah, well, that that certainly makes more sense um, from my point of view. Okay, so. I suppose taking a set, another slight step forward, really, we we spoke about you as a player, specifically as a coach, but as you've already alluded to, you're also a parent and um, particularly in recent months, there's been a lot of news around head injuries, a lot of news around long-term implications, of those injuries. So I suppose um, I'm interested in kind of as a parent, a coach and as a teacher, do you have kind of conflicting views when it comes to injuries and concussions?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, think, I think the sport is a combat sport. You know, it is, it is, there is a risk of injury um, in playing it. Um, I think we all accept that. Um, um, but we also see the benefits of the sport, you know, the life lessons it teaches, the camaraderie, the teammates that you make, um, the memories that you make. Uh, and, you know, when I took my kids down to mini junior rugby, they absolutely loved it as five and six-year-olds, putting the kit on, making them feel part of a team, running around with the mates, Having pie and peas afterwards, and um, so I think all the all the things that are positives about the sport um, for me um, outweigh some of, some of the risks. But the risks are there, and it's up to us as a sport to make sure they're minimised as best we can. And we look after the players, we coach them proper technique as a in in in, um, uh, in the young people. You know when they're when they're going through the mini junior section, coach good technique. Um, and all the things we've talked about in this podcast, you know, we make sure that we're, we're, we're mindful of putting the player at the centre and making sure that they're, they're looked after. The, there is a risk of injury. There's a risk of injury if you wanted to be a, a BMX rider, if you wanted to be you know, um, in, a, in, a, in a horse rider or whatever. Um, so um, I don't think we'll ever get rid of the, the, the injuries, but we can minimise them with good technique and good coaching. Um, and I'm passionate about that. You know, I'm passionate about getting the coaching. Um, to a point where players have a really good experience playing rugby and they get all the benefits that that I've enjoyed and the career it's created for me.
1: Yeah, no, those, those benefits are all uh, all massive. So I myself played rugby throughout school and into university and briefly post-university and I don't play so much anymore. Um, and and yeah, like the, the positive benefits it has on all aspects of your life even little things like when it comes to having job interviews and meeting people and communicating with different people you kind of develop those skills perhaps through the sport I find and certainly more than I think a lot of my friends a lot of my friends did who didn't have that kind of upbringing in the sport Uh, but kind of when you when you speak when you were a teacher did you find a lot of parents to come up to you and express a concern about playing the game
0: not really no because this was this was like Mid 90s, you know, the game was still amateur, really. You know, the sort of yeah. advent of pressures hasn't really kicked in, and, um, uh, you know, the physicality and the size of the players was still very much in check. You know, it's been obviously more recently where the pl- the power and the size of the players has increased, which has led, I think, to increase in risk and in, in injury, particularly at the top end of the game.
1: Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, okay, so I think that that kind of rounds up the main questions I wanted to discuss with you. Uh, we always finish with what we call any other business, which is just a chance for my guests to talk about anything they want from the world of sport or current affairs. Is there anything that springs to mind for you?
0: Um, any other business? There's a lot, really, I guess. Um, I think leadership would be one. Um, so I'd, I'd be um, passionate about sharing. I guess it's the teacher sharing about what I've learned. Leadership is a skill that can be learned. I think in modern society and the the way in which some some people who are in the top of the organisations in the country lead, I think a lot more could be done. And I'd like to see more done to develop leadership skills and emotional intelligence skills and communication skills in young people, you know, both in schools and uh, as they leave school going into the workplace. Because I often think we judge people on um, your GCSE results or A-level results, yeah. um, which are purely academic, whereas... The people who are successful in life are champion people who can communicate and lead well, and um, I think it's a skill that can be learned. So yeah, if anyone's listening who is interested, then um, connect with me on LinkedIn. I've got sixteen thousand connections, as you know, as you know, because you connected with me on there. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of leadership content that I've posted that hopefully will be of interest, and um, I've a leadership course out there um, that uh, six modules that people can sign up to on StuartLankins.com. So you know, if you're interested in doing that, then great. If not, send me a connection on LinkedIn and, you know, hopefully we can improve the quality of leadership in the country.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's certainly a a lot that can be done in terms of leadership in this country, for sure. Um, And I think that's not going too far to say that there's there's clearly big avenues that can be made. Uh, So if we could just have, maybe just have like a very brief introduction to leadership, perhaps maybe like one or two minutes, just where would you even start? What would be your kind of, your opening point when it comes to
0: leadership? Well, understanding it's a skill that can be learned. Um, so you don't, it's not like there's some magic wand that people are great leaders and other people aren't, you know, so you can definitely become better as a leader, um, becoming self-aware, you know, understanding your own personality, your own strengths and weaknesses. um getting feedback about, you know, your own, whether you're an extrovert an introvert due to psychometric profile, maybe, um, more socially aware, you know, um, building good relationships, Um, uh, and understanding how to get the best out of people how to communicate with people I think is probably the key facets of being a great leader and I think if you can do that um, and do it well consistently then you will gravitate to leadership positions within any any organisation
1: Yeah that's true, So that, that is applicable to so many things, it's applicable to playing sport, it's applicable to coaching sport and teaching but it's applicable to working in a hospital or working in the government or working at your local shop, anything you want to do, leadership can benefit you in so many ways, for sure. Um, Actually, I've got one more thing I want to finish up. actually. Um, It's just a very final thing. I saw this great quote from you, which was, um, you said, that's what drives you as a coach, seeing the players have their moment, the beer in the changing room, that's the holy grail. And you mentioned that after uh, Leinster won the Pro 14 a few years back. Um, So just to finish, really, could you give me perhaps two or three Real highlights from your coaching career? I'll
0: give you more than that. Um, um, winning the Yorkshire Cup with the Leeds Academy team um, was was a, was 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 one. Getting promoted with Leeds tykes into the Premiership, definitely another. Um, coaching England Saxons to win the Churchill Cup would be one. Um, getting the England job and winning the first game against Scotland. Um, beating Ireland, that Six Nations to secure the permanent job, beating New Zealand that year at Twickenham. Mm. Um, A lot of the, all the England games really, but probably the one that sticks out as well is the 2015 game against France at Twickenham, uh, 55-35. was an amazing game of rugby. Obviously, Leinster's success, you know, winning the European Cup Pro 14 titles. Um, You know, all, all ones like that really, you know, that are all those moments that you're in the changing room where you just think that's what it was for, you know, music's playing, boys have got a beer, you sat there just enjoying the moment.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, I remember that, that game against New Zealand you won really well, actually, because I didn't see it because I was playing rugby. I think we were away against um, Eton College and we got beaten quite heavily, I think, because a large proportion of our team weren't available because they had tickets to go to Twickenham. And obviously we'd, we'd laugh at them saying... <coughs> You paid all that money to go and watch England get, you know, battered by New Zealand or whatever. And uh and then we came People off the pitch. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We came off the pitch all muddy, uh we're queuing up, waiting for our uh, you know bit of post-match tease at the hatch, whatever. And then the news came through that obviously you'd won. Um, I remember that for great break, I think it was by Tuolange in the midfield. yeah. You know, yeah. and, uh, yeah, yeah. and that's quite iconic. Yeah, those pictures came through, and this was of back when you know it wasn't exactly like bbc i play on your phones and stuff so we couldn't see anything we just sort of saw this the odd picture come through and stuff And was like oh god well you know who's laughing now i suppose because we're sat here all in the mud and <laughs> it was a great victory but yeah i do remember that game and that was certainly a probably a highlight from a spectator point of view perhaps from now yeah
0: no no I mean, Twick it that day was incredible incredible
1: right well okay so i think we're going to leave it there Stuart. but thanks so much for joining me big fan no problem. um so i think people can reach you on linkedin is there any other way you
0: people can reach no, you no 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 I'm, I'm, I'm not i'm not on twitter or anything else so just, that's as far as it goes
1: linkedin linkedin's the way to reach you okay um i will uh, add that link to the uh podcast description as well uh but yeah so thanks for joining me and best of luck for the rest of the season
0: okay mate. thanks for the invite thank you It
1: was a real honour to spend some time with a very prominent man in world rugby, perhaps a figure who is offered more respect from within the sport than he is from the media on the outside. After the recording finished, Stuart and I chatted for a little while, and I think it's a real testament to the man's character that he was so keen to discuss my life, my career, and find out more about my previous guests. Far from the self-indulgent characters which can sometimes be found in the world of elite coaching. I wish Stuart and his Lencer teammates the best of luck for the rest of the season. I think it will take a real monumental effort to deprive them of more domestic or European silverware this season. I will certainly find out more about Stuart's education in leadership, as I'm sure many of you will. And I really wanna try and build on that concept, which is really interesting that leadership is a skill which can be learned. Last week, I took some time to rant about the Six Nations bubble system. I spoke about how a bubble with a hole in it will ultimately disintegrate and is therefore no longer a bubble. Since the episode went out, the France versus Scotland game has been postponed. And it has since arisen that head coach Fabien Gaultier left the French bubble to visit family and friends. And is therefore likely to be the man who introduced the virus into the camp. My issue isn't with Gaultier himself, if he has done any uh, misdemeanors, I'm sure the French union will deal with him accordingly, but I hope this may serve as a learning point for the other unions and maybe reassess quite how COVID secure their processes are and therefore adjust accordingly. If sport can't be made safe for all, then maybe that privilege has to be rescinded at the elite level. I once again feel the crossing of borders should have been avoided, It wouldn't have been impossible for those French players to have co-infected the Scottish camp, who could have spread it to their family or other clubs they get home to play for in the fallow weeks, which could co-infected local schools and then to hospitals, to other uh, jobs of industry. And that could really spread this virus further around the UK. The government is really paranoid about trying to avoid new strains entering circulation here in the UK, but are happy to have these French and Italian players flying into and out of the UK several times over the tournament. And of course that goes both ways because the home nations are flying to Italy and France as well. I think sports maybe could have learned more from America, perhaps not on their uh, issues with society on the whole, but lessons from the NBA where the conclusion of last season was held in Orlando and therefore avoided any unnecessary traveling. Why couldn't the Six Nations all be played in one neutral ground? There are no crowds present anyway, um, and therefore there's no real home field advantage in that sense. But if the venue itself offers home field advantage, why not play at, say, Wembley in London or Windsor Park in Northern Ireland or even Celtic Park in Glasgow, seeing as Celtic don't seem to be playing too much football these days anyway? Anyway, that's all for me. I want to remind you all to follow the Instagram page, which is at hips underscore and underscore dips with a Z to find out more about my previous guests and upcoming guests and some exciting content and exclusives on there. And all that leaves for me to say is stay adaptable, keep learning, and as always, most importantly, stay safe.